Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance. The very ends of the earth is thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment, take warning. O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thank you, Father, that there is refuge in your Son, the Anointed One, the Messiah, whom someday you will set on your holy mountain, Zion, there in Jerusalem, and he will rule with a rod of iron the nations of this world. And though in our day the kings of the earth plot evil against you, you look down from heaven and you laugh. You scoff at their foolishness. God, we ask that in this new year that we would not be discouraged, that we would remind ourselves of what King David wrote in this great psalm, that your providence extends to every realm of life, that you're in absolute total control. Thank you that when you saved us, that you saved us not just from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin, and someday as we sang, even our bodies from the very presence of sin when you give us a resurrected body like Christ. But we thank you that by death or by rapture to be absent from this body is to be present with you. But in the interim, you've called us to grow, to hunger for the truth of Scripture. And so as we open your word, we open our hearts to you, and we ask the Spirit to be our teacher, that as we are exposed to Scripture, he would help us to understand and to apply it. Help me, Father, fill me, anoint me, and use me again tonight in our Meet the Pastor meeting for our many guests who will come online and hear physically. Bring people into the kingdom and bring Christians who know you and have met you into your church. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his honor. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bible and turn to the epistle of James chapter 1. James is one of the general epistles in the New Testament. When you think about the New Testament, you can divide it in your mind into at least four major sections. There's what we call the historical books that comprise the four Gospels through Acts. The four Gospels summarize the life of Christ when he was here on earth. And the book of Acts describe the historical record of the next 30 years as he works through the church, starting with the ascension. And then there are the Pauline epistles, which would be 1 Corinthians through the book of Philemon. Then after the Pauline epistles, there's the non-Pauline epistles, what we typically call the general epistles or sometimes the Catholic epistles. The word Catholic is a Greek word, katholikos. 
And you can hear our word Catholic in it. It means according to the whole. And so in the great confessions of the faith, we are affirming the universal body of Christ, that while this is one local expression, we say in the Apostles' Creed, of course not written by them, but summarizing their doctrine, I believe in the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Likewise, in the Council of Nicaea, they wrote, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So we're affirming the Catholic, that is the universal body of Christ, regardless of one's denominational stripe. And it's called the holy Catholic church because if you've been saved, God has imputed the righteousness of Christ to your account. Every believer in the New Testament is called a holy one or sometimes simply translated a saint. So there are the eight general epistles or Catholic or universal epistles that are not written to a particular church in a particular geographical location, but to the entire body of Christ regardless of city or locale. They're all written in that way, but some have that as their principal focus. And so those would include Hebrews and First and Second Peter and First and Second and Third John. And on either side, you have the two James books, the two J books, James and the book of Jude. And then Revelation, which of course is not a general epistle, but it's in a category all by itself. Now remember, we learned from the opening verse to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. That's his audience. The 12 tribes who are dispersed, some of your translations say scattered, diaspora, scattered like seed. And how were these 12 tribes scattered? through persecution. And so we studied in the opening message from Acts eleven nineteen. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution. So persecution brought scattering, but God used it to bring the gospel to new places. Now, I didn't address it in the opening verse. We spent a long time on one verse of Scripture, but the question has come up, and it comes up often, so let me just answer it. People will often call into the Bible line, or some of you have asked me, what about the ten lost tribes? Well, there are no such thing as ten lost tribes. Uh, there is a theory called the ten lost tribes theory, and most of the proponents claim to be one of those ten lost tribes that were found. Sometimes this doctrine was taught in Europe, sometimes in Africa, but its object is always somehow to make these 10 tribes that were supposedly found, the new Israel, new Israelites, and somehow their religion typically superior. It was found in Anglo or British Israelism, where they said that the 10 tribes came to the United Kingdom and the British people represent that, still a popular doctrine amongst some people there. And then there's African Israelism, who also argue that they somehow are representative of these 10 lost tribes. Then you have Mormons who want to make the American Indians the 10 lost tribes. So you have all these different positions, but understand they were never lost. Now there were 10 tribes in the northern kingdom after it split that in fulfillment of prophecy were carried away by the Assyrians in 722 BC. Approximately 100 years or so later, the two southern tribes were carried away. When they were carried away, Assyria had already been conquered by the Babylonians. And so in 586 BC, the two southern tribes were brought, and all 12 were in the same geographical location. And so you will see, as we recently studied in the Christmas message, 
We learn of Anna in the tribe of Asher. That's one of the 10 northern tribes. So if they were lost, they're certainly not lost to God. And in James' thinking, they're not lost to him because that is the people to whom this book is being written. Now, with that said, let's read from this general epistle starting in verse 12. Verse 12 was the last verse we studied, but it's a hinge verse in the chapter, so I want to begin there. Follow along in your Bible. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren." Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. Samson is certainly one of the more famous Old Testament saints, and someday you will meet him in heaven. He was born to godly parents, and at his birth, he was set aside as a Nazarite. He was a man of great courage. He was a man who served as a strong leader, as one of the judges during the time in Israel's history when they were ruled by judges. He was a man of incredible, supernatural, God-given physical strength. However, while he had extraordinary physical strength, he lacked internal strength. On the outside, he was powerful and impressive, but on the inside, he was weak and vulnerable. We often say he was a he-man with a she problem. And if you've read the biblical record, then you know that lust, sexual lust, ultimately destroyed him. Samson did not know how to face temptation. And so if you're listening online, there is a place for you to download the outline. Most of you have come into the auditorium, picked one up, and I want you to take notes. It shows me, one, that you're hungry for God. I spend usually no less than 25, sometimes 35 hours preparing this text of Scripture. And I want you to know it. I don't want you just to hear it. I want you to go home and study it and meditate on it and be changed by it. And so you can see the topic this morning is facing your temptations. Now, let me bring you into the context of our passage If you remember, chapter 1 divides into two parts. The first 11 verses deal with trials on the outside. Then verses uh, uh, 13 through 27 deal with temptations on the inside. And verse 12 is kind of a hinge verse connecting the two. You'll remember he began in verse 2 through verse 4 by instructing us to have joy in the midst of our trials. So notice in verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not if, but when, because trials are a fact of life. So Job could say, yet man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. I've sat around many a campfire where God has brought that verse of Scripture to my mind. It's not a question of whether or not you will have trials. But when you will have trials, if you're born of a woman, anyone here not born of a woman? (laughs) I think not. If you're born of a woman, then you will have trials in this life. And so we are to consider it all joy 
And in turn, we are to let the God-designed trial have its purpose. Verse 4, look at those two words in let. It represents a choice. It's actually an imperative. It's a command. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect, teleos, mature, incomplete, lacking in nothing. We are to let God accomplish what the trial is designed to do. Or have you been doing that this week? You see, the real test is not if we have a trial, but how we go through that trial. And God wants us to consider it all joy. And so James reminds us we're to have joy in the trial. And the only way to have joy in the trial sometimes is to ask God for wisdom in the midst of the trial. What's the function of it? What's its purpose? We take verse 5, and we use it all the time for major decisions in life, and that is certainly a legitimate application, but sometimes we miss it in its context. It's asking for wisdom in the midst of a trial. So verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Why is it that sometimes we fail the trial? Because we lack wisdom, and typically the reason we lack wisdom is because we haven't asked for it. We're going to see here that James, who has as a major theme in this epistle prayer, he will remind us that many times unanswered prayer is born in the fact that it was unasked prayer. And so we are to ask, and we are to ask in faith, verse 6 says, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And when we fail to ask in faith, verse 7 promises, for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Then if you remember in verses 9 through 11, James reminds us that whether you are the brother of humble circumstances, that is a Christian who is economically deprived, or whether you are the rich man who has gathered much of this world's goods, in either case, trials is the great equalizer. Now, don't miss the progression of thought here in verses 9 through 11. It's related to this whole theme of trials. He's not entering into a new subject. Look at verse 9. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. James is reminding us that trials exalt the poor man. Why? Because in spite of his poverty, he has no less of God's attention, and God wants to generously give him wisdom as he would anyone else. Whether you are rich or whether you are poor, God gives wisdom. Why? Because he's not a respecter of persons. He gives wisdom, James says, without reproach. The poor man is also exalted. Why? Because he can have as much of the character of God that that trial brings as the rich man. So by contrast, the rich man is humbled through his trials, as verse 11 indicates. Why? Because he realizes how temporal his riches are. Many times, it's not until someone is in the thick of a deep trial that they begin to assess what is really important in life. And so the rich man is also humbled in his trials because he realized he needs something that his money cannot buy. And that is the wisdom to go through that trial that will shape him into the character of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice verse 12, because as I mentioned, it's a transition or a hinge verse. It connects the two halves of the chapter. Look at it. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial 
For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, the Greek word translated perseveres, as I noted last time, is a military term. It means to hold up courageously under fire. It refers to someone who's not trying to escape the battle, but someone who is going to go through and endure the battle. And so it is with trials. He is saying the rich man or the poor man, each is blessed if he lets the trial produce its end result in life, namely maturity. So here in verse 12, if you remember, he gives two promises to the believer. To the believer who perseveres under trial, there is a promise for this life and there's a promise for the next life. In this life, he will be blessed because he will have a rich and full life as he experiences the joy of the Lord and he's conformed to Christ's image. But in the next life, he will receive the crown of life. Now, don't misunderstand the passage. James is not saying that perseverance through trials results in eternal life because salvation is by grace. It is never earned or merited. He's speaking about the rewards that accompany salvation. And very often in the New Testament, those words are described with crowns. So don't misunderstand. The Bible does not teach that the guy who perseveres through trials will somehow merit salvation, as some have falsely taught from this verse. And also know that heaven will not be the same for every believer, that some will have greater reward than others. James is saying that if we persevere well under the trial, that we'll be blessed even more in the next life. And many times God uses trials, among other things, to see what's really in our hearts. Do you remember just before Israel went into the promised land, Moses reminded the people in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 2, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And so the real question is, will I continue to serve God faithfully through the trials of life or not? Will I hold up or will I fold up? And there's a lot of Christians, when life gets hard or demanding or exhausting, they quit. Sometimes they don't even show up on a Sunday morning. They have a class to teach, a, a door to manage, a, a place of service with our children or in the nursery, and they just don't show up. Why? It's rainy. It's cold. They've had a tough week, so I'm not coming. Listen to your pastor. God does not give the crown of life to just any Christian, but to those who love him. Talk is cheap. Many people talk about how they love the Lord, but it will show up in your perseverance. A real and vital love for the Lord Jesus keeps going when it gets tough. Now, as we come to verse 13, James turns from trials from without to temptations from within. And what's interesting is that little Greek word that is used in verses 2, 12, and 13, perazo, translated temptations, is the same word. In fact, the King James uses the same word in each of those verses. Let me read those three verses from the King James. In James 1-2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. Addition in verse 12, the King James says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. 
And then similar to the New American Standard, they use the same word together in verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now, technically, it's a very accurate translation because in each of those three verses, the same Greek word is used. But understand, in 17th century English, the word that's used had a dual nuance. It could refer to a trial or it could refer to some kind of pull towards evil. And the context determined which. Well, sadly, in 21st century English, it might be a little misleading and even downright confusing because we don't have that same nuance with the word temptation. So, for instance, if you read Genesis 22 and verse 1 in the King James, it says, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. Now, that might be very confusing today because James just told us that God never tempts anyone. Today, we would render it God tempted, uh, tested him. And by the way, they only have one word in Hebrew, like in Greek, and the context determines which is in view. So the meaning typically with so many words are determined by context. Maybe this chart will help you to discern between trials and temptations. Trials are allowed by God for our good, whereas temptations are attacks from Satan for evil. Trials are God's chisel to shape our character, whereas temptations are Satan's solicitations to destroy our character. Trials are designed for our maturity to cause us to stand. Temptations are designed for our misery to cause us to stumble. Trials are God's test designed to develop you, whereas Satan's temptations and solicitations are designed to destroy you. So there's a big difference between a trial and a temptation. And so verse 3 spoke of endurance through trials, whereas verse 12, in verse 12, spoke of perseverance under trials, whereas when we come to our text this morning, temptations are something that are to be resisted. And so in verse 13, James is switching gears. He's moving from trials to temptations, which forces us to ask a question. Why does he connect the two? What is the relationship between a trial from without and a temptation from within? And the answer is simply this. If we're not careful, the testings on the outside of our life can become temptations on the inside if we do not properly respond in the way in which God wants us to. When life gets tough, when our circumstances don't go the way we thought they ought to go, when the kids get sick, when you lose your job, when the transmission goes in the car, when your spouse deserts you for someone else, when someone ridicules you for being a serious follower of the Lord Jesus, if you're not careful, the testings on the outside can become temptings on the inside. So instead of considering all joy, and letting the trial have its intended result, we may find ourselves complaining and questioning and belly aching and even resisting God's will. Do you remember when God brought Israel out of Egypt by his mighty and powerful hand? No sooner had he split the Red Sea in two and brought them safely on dry ground into the land of promise, they began to complain. 
If you remember, we read in Exodus 15, God, the Scripture says, tested them when their water supply dried up. And what was their response? They began to murmur and to blame God. You see, their test had become a temptation, and sadly, they failed. There's a lot of Christians like that. Sometimes they're tested, sometimes even with hypocrisy in a church, and they just, they just give up and they stop going to church. And their test became a temptation. And so if we are to mature and grow up in Christ, we have to faith, face both testings and temptations God's way. Now, sometimes there's no test at all. It just immediately comes with a temptation. And so if we are to face temptation with victory, there are three critical principles that James underscores for us in this passage that I want you to jot down and go home and think about and meditate on this week. The first principle that James teaches us is that to face temptations well, we must understand man's nature. To face temptation well, we need to understand man's nature. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So there are two critical aspects of man's nature that are underscored in these two verses. First, I am reminded that it is in man's nature to blame. It's in man's nature to blame. Again, we read in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. When a man is tempted, his tendency is to blame someone. Now, I want you to circle the word that I asked you to circle in verse 2, and it's the word when. And once again, verse 13 does not say if, it says not if you are tempted, but when you are tempted. Listen, you will never reach a place in your spiritual life when you are not tempted. No one is immune to temptation. The monk living behind the monastery wall has as much opportunity for temptation as the businessman does down in the office. No one is immune. In fact, when you become a Christian, very often the temptations don't decrease, they increase. Why? Because you are now a friend of God in by extension, you are an enemy of Satan. And so, as a new Christian, people often say, look, the devil seems to be chasing me. Yes, because you've switched kingdoms. You've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. A new Christian was telling his boss how the devil always seemed to be dogging his footsteps. And they were out duck hunting one day, and the boss said, Sam, you're kind of a strange creature. You claim to be a Christian, and yet you're always talking about wrestling with temptation and always talking about the devil being after you. Sam, I'm not a Christian, and the devil never seems to be after me. So Sam said to his boss, boss, suppose we're out duck shooting, hunting these ducks today, and we shot two ducks, and one duck just lay on the ground, flipping and flopping all over the place. Which duck would you go after first? He'd say, I'd go after the one that was flopping. That's right. That's what you do, boss, and the devil knows that you are the dead duck. <laughs> no spiritual life, never born from above, so no real threat to the evil one because you're asleep in his arms. 
But when you become a Christian, and especially when you begin to grow, and you become a threat to Satan's kingdom, sometimes the heat is turned up. Listen, don't ever get so proud in your thinking that you have overcome some area of your life where you think you could never again fall in that area. When you are doing that, you are filled with pride and you are tempting the devil to tempt you. The apostle Paul made this statement in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. He had just reviewed Israel's history in the first 10 verses, and he said these examples from Israel's history were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, if you think you are so solid and strong in your Christian walk, be careful lest you fall, because that's when you're most vulnerable. And then in verse 13, he follows it with great encouragement. No temptation is overtaking you. But such is his common man. That is, no temptation is unique to you, as some people have falsely concluded. Some have thought, well, no one is going through what I'm going through. No one has ever felt what I feel. And God simply says, no, it's common to all men. Your temptation is not unique. It is no different from anyone else's experience. And so Paul continues, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. So still others reason, well, it may not be a unique temptation, but it is an unusually strong temptation. Maybe other people have felt the same thing, but certainly not with the same intensity. It was bigger than me. I was just overwhelmed by it. And God's rebuttal is clear. He controls the temptation. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. Still others would say, well, it's, it was uh, unique or it was exceptionally strong, but they'll reason, hey, listen, it was an impossible test. It, it may not have been unique. It may not have been exceptionally strong, but it was impossible. There's no way I could have passed the test. It was an impossible test, and God reasons, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. These are two verses every Christian should have memorized. And if you're coming to my basic discipleship that we are teaching intermittently on Wednesday nights, and we'll be back in it a week from Wednesday, one of those handouts, you'll get 100 verses every Christian should memorize, and these are two of those. Temptation. It's real. And so he warns us here in James chapter 1 and verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Why is that the profession of some people that I'm being tempted by God? Because it is a man's nature always wanting to blame. Invariably, when you yield to temptation, you want someone to blame. And so the apostle James reminds us here that we cannot possibly blame God, and he gives two specific reasons why. First, we cannot blame God because it's contrary to his nature. Look again in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. The devil cannot dangle some kind of bait in front of God and tempt him with evil. Why? Because first of all, there's nothing in God that wants anything. There is nothing in God that needs anything. God is absolutely complete. There is no itch that the devil can scratch. 
So no one can say that God is tempted by evil because he has it all. He is complete. He is absolutely holy. He is perfect. God is too holy to be tempted. He is the antithesis, the exact opposite of sin. You say, well, wait a minute. Was not Jesus tempted? James just said God cannot be tempted. You Christians say that Jesus is God. I thought Jesus was tempted. Jesus was not tempted in his divinity. Jesus was tempted in his humanity. And since the two natures of Christ are inseparably brought together into one person, he never sinned. If you take a piece of soft solder, or as we say in New England, solder, we speak more like the Brits up there in New England, though it's spelled S-O-L-D-E-R, and you take a piece of soft solder and you infuse it into an iron beam... All by itself, the soft solder can bend, but when brought together into the iron beam, it's not going to bend. Well, the temptations of the Lord Jesus, if you've taken my course on Christology, and some of you are listening online, we have sometimes between 30 and 40 states and foreign countries every Sunday live streaming, we have something called the Institute of Biblical Studies. It's taught on a graduate level. And it will ground you in the faith. And one of the courses is called Christology. And we look at the two natures of Christ and how they were brought together. And the Bible teaches what theologues call the impeccability of Christ. That is, the temptations of Christ were not given to see if he could sin. The temptations of Christ were given to show that he could not sin. And so when you are tempted, don't ever blame God, first and foremost, because God cannot be tempted by evil. It's contrary to God's person. But not only is temptation contrary to God's person, temptation is contrary to God's purpose. And he himself, the text says, he himself does not tempt anyone. Again, this is consistent with what we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that God is not the great tempter, God is the great deliverer. He provides a way of escape. You say, well, how can a holy God make someone sin? And the answer is he cannot. It's totally against his person. It's totally against his purpose. So you see, if God tempted you, think about this. If God tempted you, then you'd have the perfect alibi. I mean, who could resist an all-powerful God? No one could. Then you'd have a reason to blame God, and it's in man's nature invariably to blame. Eve attempted to blame Satan. She said, in essence, the devil made me do it. And Adam, well, we read in Genesis 3, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Adam was saying the immediate cause was Eve, but the ultimate cause was God. But listen, you can't blame anyone else but yourself. And many times, people aren't necessarily so bold to blame God, but they'll say, look, the ghetto I was raised in, that's what caused me to fall. The glands that you've given me, the the parents that I was entrusted with, man always wants someone to blame. And so you ask a man, why do you drink? Why do I drink? I drink because the woman you gave me drove me to drink. All she does is nag me. Nag, 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 nag. All she ever does is nag me. You interview her and you ask, why do you nag him all the time? Why do I nag him all the time? All he does is drink, 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 drink. 
And man is still saying to God, it's the woman you gave me. It's the background you gave me. It's the friends you gave me. It's the body you gave me. It's the environment you gave me. And that's what the psychobabble of the Christian world is teaching, sadly. But there's one thing is you cannot, you cannot, you cannot have an alibi for sin because God will not accept it. But it's in man's nature to habitually, continually blame. Secondly, it is in man's nature to sin. It's in man's nature to sin. You cannot say like the famous comedian of decades ago, Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it, because James plainly says here in verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So sin is not an outside job. James is saying sin is an inside job. A man sins because by nature he is sinful. In Psalm 51.5, the great confessional sin of King David, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not saying that the intimacy that David's mother and father had was a sinful act. God endorsed it. He is affirming in that verse as the Hebrew underscores and emphasizes that from the moment of conception, because human life begins at conception, we are sinful, fallen people. An apple tree is not an apple tree because it bears apples. No, rather it bears apples because it is an apple tree. And it is in man's nature to sin, to do what is wrong, because by nature he is a sinner. And so the Bible affirms in Romans chapter 5 that we sinned in and with Adam. So you can't even dump it on Adam and say, well, look, I'm just experiencing the consequences of Adam's sin. No, Paul says, the whole race was wrapped up in Adam's loins, such that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And so I recognize that this is totally contrary to modern psychology. Man is not evil, man is ill. Man is not sinful, he's just sick. It's not really his fault. And so we live in a society of victims. Look, half my battle as a counselor, as a pastor sometimes, is just getting people to take responsibility for what they've done. So first, to face temptation well, we must understand man's nature. Second, to face temptation well, we must understand sin's nature. We need to understand sin's nature. Let me read verses 14 and 15 together. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now he highlights two characteristics of our sin. First, James, to highlight these two characteristics, he uses three critical words that you might want to underline or circle in your text. First, he speaks to the sin nature as it has its conception. But each one, he says, is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Circle or underline the word lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Underline the word sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's a description in these two verses of the anatomy of sin. The first word is lust. The second key word found in verse 14 is sin, and the third key word found in verse 15 is death. Now, the word lust simply means a strong desire. It can be used positively in Scripture or negatively. Before we're done with the epistle of James, it will be used positively. 
Now, it won't come out that way in the English text, but it's the same word as we will see. It can mean a strong desire, but it can also be used, as it's being used in this context, of a negative desire. Now, oftentimes when we hear the word lust, we associate it just with sexual lust. But the truth of the matter is in the New Testament, it's referred to any kind of strong desire that's against God's will. Now, I hope you understand that the various drives that God gives us in and of themselves are not sinful. It's when you seek to fulfill that drive in an ungodly fashion that it becomes sin. And so sleep is normal. In fact, the psalmist says he gives sleep to his beloved. But when it becomes laziness or slothfulness, the Bible refers to it as sin. Eating is normal. It's something we do. Jesus often fellowshiped with his disciples around a meal. But when it becomes gluttony, it becomes sin. Sex is a normal drive. I believe in it. Otherwise, I would not be here this morning. But when that drive is attempted to be fulfilled outside of the confines of marriage, which is defined between a man and a woman, and let me say, we are in for a radical year. We have people with an agenda of evil like we have never seen before that are going to come into our government. And you need to come to next week's sermon. I'm going to depart from our series in James and speak on a very specific topic, and I'm going to address some of these issues. But we've got an agenda of evil that is going to unfold that deals with transgenderism and homosexuality and how you view some of these things, freedom of speech issues, and on and on the list goes. Listen, I don't care what the government calls a marriage. God's definition between a man and a woman is the only definition that is taught in Scripture. Now, interestingly, there are two colorful words used here in verse 14 that describe Satan's tempting process. The first Greek word is translated with two English words, carried away. And it's used in classical Greek of a hunter who baits his trap. When my brother Kevin and I were 10 and 11 years old, respectively, he's 11 months older than I am, we decided to go up in the fields behind our house to try to catch a rabbit. And we dug a hole. It took us half the day, about two and a half feet deep. And then we uh, placed twigs over the top of the hole, and we topped it off with sticks and grass. And, and we were hoping to catch a rabbit. And there on the top, we put a beautiful carrot, and we were just hoping, well, the only thing we caught was Prince Nolton. He was running through the field, and he stepped into our two-foot hole, sprained his ankle, and tore his coat, and he could have wrung our necks. That's the thought behind the Greek word that God gives James here in this passage. You're trying to convince an animal that he will be satisfied with the bait. But what you cannot see are the hidden consequences. Unfortunately, those rabbits were a lot smarter than we were. But the second word that he uses is translated here, enticed. Some of your translations, the New King James says, drawn away. The ESV in the Net Bible says, lured. And it was the Greek word used for the baiting of a hook when you go fishing. So there's the fisherman, and he's hoping to catch Mr. Bass. And so he thinks, I know Mr. Bass is hungry today, and so he puts a particular fly on his fly rod, and and he puts it out there right next to 
that lily pad log, and he's hoping that he's going to bite on that log, and then suddenly, boom, he hits it. He's enticed. He's drawn away. He just sees it, and he can no longer wait, and he gobbles it, and he is hooked. That's the idea that James is conveying here. The devil always wants to hook you, and the devil knows the kind of bait to get you with. He may dangle adultery or pride or envy or greed or dishonesty, any number of things he may use. His goal is to draw you away. Now, please understand, the temptation in and of itself is not sin, for the Lord Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. The temptations that are recorded in Matthew 4, Luke 4, fit into three realms, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. So Jesus experienced every kind of temptation that we will face. But it's what you decide to do with that temptation that becomes critical. I was counseling a young man yesterday, and he said, you know, how do I get rid of these temptations? And I said, you'll never get rid of temptation. Now, you can feed temptations. And we're to starve the sin nature. But the question is, what are you going to do with that temptation? It was Martin Luther who rightly said, you cannot prevent the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. And that's what James is underscoring. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. So he's using here the analogy of pregnancy because there must be conception for birth to take place. And so what James is saying is when you have the outward attraction with the inward desire and the two meet, then you have sin. When it's conceived in the heart, it gives birth to sin. And so James continues this argument given to him by the Spirit of God. The sin nature has its conception, but then he reminds us that the sin nature has its consequences. The sin nature has its consequences. One of Satan's oldest tricks is to bait you into the act. You see, when conception takes place, you have a developing baby. And even so, sin, it's not static. There's a progression to it. And its consequences certainly can be cut off by repentance. But please understand, sin is never static. It is a law of God. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that you will reap. You will reap what you sow. You cannot sit in front of the television night after night after night and feed on trash and filth and expect it not to affect you. You know, there are some parents who are headed for heaven, but humanly speaking, their children are headed for hell because they thought, oh, you know, the kids are in bed and they're not around and we can pull this off without anyone knowing and they're feeding on trash and they're short-circuiting the spirit of God's work in their life and their ability to protect their home, to have discernment is lost because God is not mocked. I am sure when King David was looking at beautiful Bathsheba taking a bath, that he never would have predicted the consequences that would come with that sin of adultery. You see, because of the sin that was conceived in his heart, there was the sin of adultery, and not only adultery, he got Uriah drunk, and beyond getting Uriah drunk, he got Uriah murdered, and not only Uriah murdered, but because of this evil, vicious act, many of Uriah's men were murdered un 
that didn't have to happen. He ruined his witness as the king. And from that experience, four of his sons died, and he was a broken-hearted man. They died living awful lives. We all die, but they died living an awful life. And what Nathan, what he said to Nathan the prophet came true in his own life. And he never, ever, ever again, this man who was a friend of God, he lived with the consequences. This man who was a man after God's own heart, he never again regained his undisputed place as the king of Israel. Sin is serious. And we are to be ruthless with sin as it is with us. That's why Jesus said, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Why? Because it is serious. Now, he did not literally mean cut off your hand or your foot or pluck out your eye, because if you pluck out your right eye, you still have the left eye in which to execute the sin. Surgery was not the problem. It's a heart issue. And so Jesus is wanting us to see how ruthless we must be with sin. And so here in verse 15, when lust is conceived, sin is born, or to use his words, it gives birth to sin. And then James adds, notice, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The conception of sin followed by birth does not result in life, in something meaningful as the devil habitually promises you. It results in death. You have a stillborn. I mean, have you ever seen how enticing the alcohol ads are? They show some picture of a frosty, cold glass and a beautiful mountain scene. Many times uh, there in a bar room, accompanied with women dressed seductively. And they spend millions and millions of dollars to, de to, to bait some poor fish with their drink. But they never show you the consequences, do they? When my wife and I were in New York City a year ago last December, I saw one gentleman laying there in the gutter on a cold night, covered over in his own vomit. They don't show you those pictures. They don't show you the wrecked automobiles. They don't show you the beaten wives. They don't show you the frightened children. They don't show you the adultery that comes with drink. They don't show you the violence and the murders. They just show you the beautiful glass as it sparkles. They never show you the serpent's bites. There are many foolish Christians who think I am ignorant, that I am legalistic because I say you shouldn't drink because it is strong drink and it is their ignorance that does not understand what strong drink is. That it's not whiskey and vodka and the distilled liquors that come a thousand years later, but it was wine fermented by all these big shot Christian leaders. I can have a beer. I can have a glass of wine with my pizza. And so first the man takes a drink, and then the drink takes a drink, and before long the drink takes the man. You say, what kind of death does he mean here? Is he talking about physical death? Is he talking about spiritual death? Is he talking about eternal death? And I would say all of the above. It depends on the person. A non-Christian can experience eternal death in the lake of fire. Why? Because his love for sin becomes his God. And it keeps him from yielding to Jesus as Lord. And a Christian, 
Even a Christian can experience physical death prematurely. And so 1 John 5, 16 <clears throat> speaks of a sin that leads to death. He's talking about physical death. Or 1 Corinthians eleven thirty. some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are asleep. That is, you've died prematurely because of habitual, unchecked sin in the life. And certainly for the believer, death can mean broken fellowship with God. That closeness, that intimacy, that life that God wants you to know, that the devil does not want you to experience, is lost. And so the sobering command, do not be deceived. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And sometimes Christians have been deceived into thinking, well, I've done such and such, or I've done so and so, and it hasn't hurt me. Remember, it takes nine months before you get the baby. You may think nothing has happened, but whether it's nine seconds or nine months or nine years, sooner or later you will meet the consequences. It's like the cigarette smoker who thinks that he can smoke with impunity. So one of my neighbors, now in heaven, a dear Christian man, loved him to death, had a stroke, and his doctor told him it was not for the 15 years you haven't smoked. It was for the 25 years that you did smoke that you got this stroke. And so James is saying, do not be deceived because sin deceives us. It always promises something that it cannot deliver. So first, we are to face temptations well. We have to understand man's nature. Secondly, if we are to face temptation well, we must understand sin's nature. Third, finally, to face temptation well, we must understand God's nature. James has told us that God, what God will not do, that is, he will not tempt you because it's contrary to his person and contrary to his purpose. So if God does not tempt, then what does he do? Well, James first reminds us God gives only good and perfect gifts. Now, I want you, beginning here in verse 17, to see how James uses invincible logic that should serve as an incredible encouragement to you. So let's start with the theology that he gives from nature, from the physical world, so that we can understand the major and minor premise that follows. Let's start by reading all of verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He describes God here as the father of lights. In fact, the Greek text says, tone photon, photon. You can hear our word photo from it. It's literally the father of the lights, which you could figure out even if you didn't know Greek. He's pointing specifically to the two great lights above that God made to regulate the years and the seasons and so forth. So the sun rises in the east and it stands high in the sky at mid-noon and then as it sets in the west, things get dark. We had a full moon a couple of weeks ago when I got up and I leave around 6 a.m. and the moon was big and glorious. I just had to stand and look at it for a second. But when I left early this morning, it was just a little sliver because it waxes full and it wanes to a crescent. But with God, there is no variation. There is never a shifting shadow. There is no turning with God because he never turns away from you. When you need him, and we always need him, it's consistent with his character because he is the father of lights. He is the originator of lights. In fact, God is light himself. 
The apostle John says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. There are four God is verses in the New Testament that you should be familiar with. Maybe this chart will help you a little bit. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. God is love. In John 4, 24, Jesus told the Samaritan woman, God is spirit. God is spirit. Hebrews 12, 29, it says, God is a consuming fire. But here also, God is light. And that's the truth that James is relating to us here. In fact, of all of his statements about God's essential being, I suppose none is more comprehensive than the simple statement, God is light. It is in God's nature to reveal himself as it is in the property of light to shine. God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature are clearly seen through the things that he has created. And so as light shines and reveals the darkness, even so the light metaphor is used in two ways in the Bible, Old and New Testament, intellectually and morally. Intellectually, it is used to dissect truth from error, falsehood from truth. But it is also used morally to dissect what is holy and pure from one that is sinful. So intellectually, light is truth, and darkness is ignorance and error. And morally speaking, light is purity, and darkness is evil. Let me cite a few verses to highlight this simple truth in Scripture. And so on the realm of truth, the psalmist can say this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119. By the way, Jewish people memorize Psalm 119. When my children were small, we learned the Christian alphabet. A is for all of sin and falls short of the glory of God. B is for believe in the Lord Jesus. They memorized Psalm 119 because each great paragraph or section starts with, you know, a different Hebrew letter. It's the longest chapter, by the way, in all the Bible. Did you know that? And the shortest chapter in all the Bible is Psalm 117. And the middle chapter in all the Bible is Psalm 118. That's just a little trivia in case you're interested. I ask the kids about that sometimes. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In the same Psalm, Psalm 119, 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Likewise, in 2 Peter 1:19, Peter said this, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. If you know the context, Peter is speaking about the transfiguration, which was an absolutely amazing event, and he is in no way downplaying it. When Peter, James, and John there on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration saw Christ glorified with Moses and Elijah, he got a glimpse of the coming kingdom. But he wants us to know that while you may never have a Mount of Transfiguration kind of experience, and you won't, the test, not in this life, you will in the coming kingdom if you know Christ, but the testimony of God's word about Jesus, Peter is saying, is even more sure, to which he says you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, there are some examples of light dispelling ignorance with the truth of Scripture, but equally important is when light is used morally in Scripture to separate good from evil. And so most of us at least know Isaiah 5. What are those who call evil good? That's more and more the average leader in our nation. They are calling evil good. You can call transgenderism good. It is evil. 
You can call adultery good, and you can teach our children in their schools how to have safe sex, but it is evil. You can call homosexuality good, but it is evil. And on and on and on we could go. What are those who call evil good? And good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Likewise, if you've read Paul's epistles, then you know that several times he uses the light-darkness metaphor to contrast good from evil. For instance, in his letter to the Ephesians, the fifth chapter, he said, For you were formerly darkness... But now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. And then in verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, don't get lost in this forest of theology. Remember, James is writing to Jewish Christians who grew up under the Tanakh. They studied the Old Testament scriptures. They had a biblical handle on the metaphorical usage of light, unlike most biblically illiterate and ignorant people in our day. And so it's in that context, he says in verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, from the Father of the lights, literally, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Here's the point. Because God is light, he does not have a dark side either to his written revelation or to his moral character. And because God never, ever, ever changes, we call that the immutability of God, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because in James' words, there is no variation or shifting shadow. Therefore, you can depend on him every single time to give you what is good and what is right. And so that's the theology behind the illustration that he is now going to present as he gives a major premise and a minor premise. Don't miss it. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. That's his major premise, that God gives only good and perfect gifts. And his minor premise is that God never changes because there is no variation or shifting shadow. And for this reason, the only thing that you can expect from God is that which is good and right and perfect for you. And you let that run through your mind. The next time the devil hikes on your back and tries to pull you down against the will of God, God gives every good thing, every perfect gift. Satan never does. And so while God gives us good things, the devil, by contrast, makes you pay for what you get, and what you get you pay the highest price for. So not only does God give good and perfect gifts, point B there on your outline, God gives the ultimate gift of eternal life, the ultimate gift of eternal life. And if God can give the ultimate gift of eternal life, then he can give all the lesser gifts that flow from it. So having reminded us of God's goodness, James now gives us a specific illustration when God gave us salvation through a new birth. And so to drive home his point, he gives us an example. Look at verse 18 in your Bible. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Every now and then, someone will say to me, Pastor Carl, isn't it odd that the gospel is left out of the letter of James and that the new birth is never mentioned? Well, they have obviously not read the book of James very carefully. As we will see, it runs all the way through this book. And here he mentions the new birth in verse 18. And the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. 
The King James says, he begat us. The Net Bible says, by his sovereign plan, he gave us birth. I hope you understand that salvation is not a work of man. It is a work of God. God took the initiative. It was not Adam who was seeking God, but God who was seeking Adam, where he comes into the garden. He says, where are you, Adam? God never learns anything. He never asks questions. He's the omniscient God. He asks questions to reveal, and he was coming after Adam to show him there was a huge problem. Listen, by, none, by, by, by nature, none of us seek God, no, not one. So don't you think for one skinny minute that you reasoned your way into the kingdom, that you read some book on apologetics, that you studied some prophecy in Scripture and convinced, yeah, this is it. No, the initiative did not begin with you. It began with God. He worked in your heart first that you would even want to discover and seek those things. God comes after us, and so Jesus, in his great purpose statement, said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, please understand, the instrument that God used to bring about the new birth was the Word of God. And so we read quite plainly, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth, how? By the Word of truth. Just as in human birth, two parents are required, even so in the second birth. On the one hand, the Bible teaches us in John 3, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 12, that we are born again by the Spirit of God. But on the other hand, the Bible teaches there's a second person in, in conversion, so to speak, or a second tool, not a tool, the Spirit of God is a person, but an instrument, and it's the Word of God. Now, you might want to put in the margin next to uh, this verse, 1 Peter 1.23. 1 Peter 1.23, write that in the margin. Or if you have cross-references, it might be there, I don't know. But look at verse 23, or listen to it, of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. In other words, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring about a second birth. And don't ever forget that when you try to win people to Christ. It is not your testimony that is going to bring people into the kingdom. Your testimony has no power to convert anyone. It may give you the platform to share the Word of God, but faith comes from hearing, hearing by the Word of God. You are born again of the Spirit of God. You are born again through the Word of God, through imperishable seed, the living and abiding Word of God. And when you understand that, you will use Scripture as you attempt to win people into the kingdom. On countless occasions... I've been in situations where I could see they just don't get it. There's kind of a fog. There's a veil over their eyes. And I will just keep reading Scripture and Scripture and Scripture. And then like in an instant, the Spirit of God lifts up the veil and they see the reality of it. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This is a work of God. Look, you may be a tool by which you can speak the word of God on behalf of the living Christ to an unsaved man, but you cannot take credit for ever leading anyone into the kingdom. This is a work of the living God. And so James tells us that God did all of this. Why? So that, here's the reason, don't miss it. So that, circle those two words, so that. We would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Now, do not forget in the opening verse, he's writing to Jewish people, to the 12 tribes of the diaspora. 
He is writing to a Jewish audience, Christian Jews who understood something about first fruits. It was a very meaningful designation and illustration. They're entirely familiar with the Feast of First Fruits. And if you're not, you can read of it in the, in the Torah, in the third book of the Torah, the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. It's a great chapter on, on the various feasts of Israel. So the Feast of First Fruits, it took place on the day after the Sabbath on Sunday after the Passover. The Hebrews would come and they would present a sheaf. Jesus died on Passover. The following day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a high and holy Sabbath. And the following day began the Feast of First Fruits. He dies on Passover. He's buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, picturing his sinless body, and he is raised from the dead on, the, on, on Easter Sunday, as we call it, on the Feast of First Fruits. And on the Feast of First Fruits, it's all by typology, it's a beautiful picture, the priest would bring a shingle sheaf and dedicate it to the Lord as symbolic of what was yet to come. So you have First Fruits. And sometimes I remember a farmer in Lebico said, why don't you come over? He said, the first fruits are in. I thought, oh, this is impressive. He knew, he, knew, he knew what first fruits were. It's that early crop that came in before the harvest came. And so they came and they dedicated that single sheaf in asking God's blessing, thanking God for what he might do, and that he would bring a great harvest to come. And Jesus, of course was the first fruits. He was the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrected body. And there is a great getting up day when he will come back and he'll raise up the living and the dead, some to a resurrection of life, others to a resurrection of judgment. But James is writing to biblically minded Jewish Christians who understood something about first fruits. And so as he writes to these Jewish believers, he is reminding them that we are a kind of first fruits knowing that there is a greater harvest yet to follow. Remember, this is one of the earliest letters written in all the New Testaments, and there's not a single mention of Gentiles anywhere in it. It's for us. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. But this is written to Jewish Christians. And by the way, when the Jewish people gave their first portions to the Lord, they didn't give, over, they didn't give God their leftovers. They didn't give God their raggedy stuff. They didn't give the sheaf that was filled with disease or maybe filled with bugs. They gave their very best. And so are we. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. And James is telling us that of all that God created, we have been recreated in Christ, that we are of God's highest and finest. We are a picture of first fruits. And so every recipient of the new covenant is not to serve God in a half-hearted way, but with their best. And so for that reason, James is going to go on in the paragraph to follow. God doesn't want us to, to, to remain fledging little baby Christians. He wants us to respond and mature according to the word of God. The word of God that brought about a second birth will be the word of God that will bring about a mature growth in your Christian life, which we will come to next time. Now, don't miss the broad sweep of this passage. Satan's temptation only brings death, whereas God's greatest gift brings eternal life. I just want to leave that thought in your mind this week, 
that God gave his very best so you could have his very best. And when Satan lures you into some solicitation to evil, just remember he is a great rip-off artist. Where are you today? What's going on in the inner recesses of your heart? Where do you stand with Christ? You see, the devil will try to make you weary and to give up on the goodness of God. It's like the Christian lady I met, and she said, I just don't know if God's going to come through. I've been waiting for years to get a Christian husband. I can't seem to find one. So I'm going to marry this unbeliever. And I hope he'll become a Christian. What was she saying? She was saying God is not good. And that his ways are not the best ways. For what fellowship has light with darkness? What have in common a believer with an unbeliever? Absolutely nothing. So she was willing to violate and break 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And James says, every good thing and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. You see, so often we sin because we have an inaccurate view of God. And Satan wants us to think that God has ripped us off. Augustine Many of you know him, a great 4th century Christian. Before he was converted, he had a huge problem with sexual lust. In fact, he had a long-term relationship with a maid in his household with whom he had an illegitimate son. Though no children are illegitimate, but the way he brought this child into the world was illegitimate. And Augustine struggled with this strong sexual illicit desire that he had. And one day as he writes in his book, The Confessions, he said, oh God, deliver me from my sins, but not now. And of course, nothing changed as you would expect. And later as he said, oh God, deliver me from some of my sins and do it now. But he was still enslaved. And finally he said, oh God, deliver me from all of my sins and please do it now. And it was then that he had the breakthrough and the slavery that he had to sexual lust began to change. And as he said, he was walking down the street, one of the women that he had had repeated sexual relationships with, she called out to him and she said, oh Augustine, it is I. To which he wrote, Yes, but it is no longer I. He had now become satisfied with a new relationship with God through Christ. Will you today say, I believe God's word, that God is good and he only has good for me, that he is always consistent, there's no variation in his character? Would you say that today? Would you be willing to commit yourself to him? Some of you are believers and you need to refresh your commitment to him because you've been out here in Never Never Land and the devil's got a hold on you and he is laughing and mocking you. And sadly, many listening to me have never met Christ. You've convinced yourself you've met Christ, but you've never seen any new life. And when someone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
But there's good news. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Whosoever will may come. Whoever, that means you, whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning that you have been teaching us by your Spirit to face temptation well. We have to understand something about our own nature and sin's nature, but most of all, your nature, that you are a good God, that you only give good gifts. And so help us to run that deep through our heart this week when a solicitation to evil comes, that your ways are the best ways. I pray today, Father, for someone here who's never received Jesus. Help them to know that today is the day of salvation, that tomorrow may be eternally too late for them. Help them in simple, childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, for the rest of us who have crossed that line, as we're attempting to read this book once a week through these next several months, we pray its truth would reverberate deep in our souls, that we would be changed by it, that we might become more and more expressively trophies of grace to the glory of Jesus. And in his holy name we pray, amen.